You're listening to The Clear Spot on Resonance 104.4 FM. And in today's episode of the six-weekly show about publishing, Booklist, we're looking at some of the problems inherent in writing autobiography. I'm Alex Fitch, and tonight you'll hear a panel discussion about the genre recorded at the First Fictions Festival at Sussex University in January. Author Sue Eckstein will be discussing autobiographies as graphic novels with Nicola Streeton and Anuin Wright. Nicola's book, Billy, Me and You, and Anuin's Things to Do in a Retirement Home Trailer Park When You're 29 and Unemployed, couldn't be more different in their approaches, with the former combining cartoons, diary drawings and scrapbook montage, and the latter depicting the author's friends and families as anthropomorphic creatures in domestic settings. Before that, here's a word from our sponsors. Resonance FM is London's only non-profit community radio art station who need your donations to help keep the station and podcasts on air. All the programme makers and all the engineers all work for free to bring you shows as diverse as The Bike Show, The Free University of the Airways, Hooting Yard, Speakers Resonance Corner, FM accepts donations in the form of cheques, credit and debit cards, bank transfers, PayPal and cash. Go to www.resonancefm.com for more details. We also accept hobnobs and tea bags. Your donation means our continued existence. Welcome to First Fictions, which, as I'm sure you know, is a partnership between um, Brighton-based independent publisher Myriad Editions and the University of Sussex. It is a unique collaboration between a publisher and a university to nurture new talent. And it's a particular pleasure for me to be here today because I'm um, both a Myriad author, a graduate of Sussex University. I did my MA and D Phil here in creative writing and also my day job that sadly I haven't been able to afford to give up yet, despite my relationship with Myriad, is also (laughs) on the campus. I'm a lecturer in medical ethics at Brighton and Sussex Medical School. Well, at um, first glance, if you've looked at the books downstairs, you might not think that there's anything particularly common to the three works and the three writers here today. But I think it is the way that we've each used memory and our own lives and experiences in very different ways that is the thread that binds us together here. The three of us, uh, Nicola Streeton, Nye Wright and myself, Sue Exxon, are each going to give a short talk broadly on the themes of the role of autobiography in fiction and the use of memoir in creative writing. So I'm going to start by talking very briefly about my second novel, um, Interpreters, and I'll then do a couple, uh, a short reading before I hand over to Nicola and Nye. Well, I've long been exercised about memoir and autobiographical fiction, so much so that I have just completed a, def- a PhD, essentially, about whether it can ever be ethical to write autobiographical fiction, if and how you can do it without betraying those closest to you. During the process of thinking about and planning and then writing my novel, I read a huge range of autobiographies, memoirs, autobiographical novels and life writing theory, which I'm sure had a significant effect on the shape and the tone of interpreters and on the aesthetic and the ethical choices I made during the writing process. So Interpreters is a work of fiction, but it has grown out of memory and imagination. It tells the fictional story of a middle-aged woman's journey, both physical and psychological, towards some kind of understanding about her childhood and the choices that she and those to whom she's closest have made and the effects these choices have had on other people's lives. And it tells another story, too, of a woman's, another woman's journey from Germany to Holland and then to England 
and her attempt to navigate a very private voyage towards absolution. It's a novel that explores the notion of identity, the interpretation of the past, the secrets and the lies inherent in families, and the parent and child relationship, and the collective and personal guilt of a generation who grew up in Nazi Germany. And within the narrative, most of the characters, events, and places are fictitious. But the novel was inspired by two real journeys I made, one to Buchenwald and the other to my suburban childhood home that I visited for the first time in about 40 years. So what I've attempted to do in my novel is to retain just the emotional core of my childhood and a few truths, in inverted commas, because I I really think there isn't such a thing as a definitive truth. But I've also (coughs) attempted to liberate myself from the constraint of conventional (coughs) life writing with its requirements for historical accuracy, a logical time frame, and the expectation of truthfulness that arise from what has been termed the autobiographical pact with the reader, and I think that's something that Nicola is going to take further later. So I like to think of it rather as creating a homeopathic remedy, and I've changed the stories and the characters' natures. I've distilled and diluted them. I've manipulated them, I think, to the extent that the original substance is barely recognisable. But what I've hoped to retain is the power and integrity But having said that, there are sections that are broadly true, and again, use true in inverted commas, and undistilled, and they're drawn from my paternal grandmother's memoir that she essentially wrote for her grandchildren about her life in Turkey in the 1930s, and from recordings that I made of her when she was in her late 90s. She died when she was nearly 103. And I felt quite different about fictionalising my grandmother different to how I did about drawing on the lives of other relatives and friends and acquaintances. And when I was thinking about why that was, I think it was that she, it felt like she was already in the public domain and that somehow she would feel very pleased if her stories were taken to a wider audience. So I'm going to read um, an extract sort of from about halfway through Interpreters, which I hope will illustrate what I've tried to do here. The narrator is Julia and her brother is Max, um, her older brother is Max, and this is Julia remembering her trips to her grandmother's house as a child. Max had long been marked out to be the next to take on the mantle of medical greatness. And when you become a doctor, my grandmother would proclaim, as she got out the chessboard and set out the meerschaum pieces, or, and when you become a famous doctor, when she felt particularly proud of her ancestors and descendants. For some reason, I didn't mind that I was never included in this family hall of fame. Max never commented. He just smiled and nodded slightly, but that was enough for my grandmother to feel reassured that the dynasty would continue. I hated chess, with its endless silences and brooding pawns. My grandmother's efforts to teach me didn't last long. It's lucky Max isn't as unintelligent as you, she observed, and your father, when he was only eight, He was the chess champion of all the schools in Germany. Big deal, I muttered. You're right, she said approvingly, unfamiliar with the phrase. It was a very big deal and a great honour. Says you're far too stupid for chess, I'd better play with Max. Come, Max, you set up the pieces again. Here, Julia, you can sort out my sewing box while Max and I play. And if you're very quiet, I'll tell you some more family stories later. So, after the breaking off of relations with Germany and the entry of Turkey into war with the Allied side, the members of the German embassy had to leave Turkey. On the day they were being transported away, 
My husband was called to the commercial attaché whose child had a very high temperature. He was among the leading Nazis in Turkey and his office was the headquarters of spying. As my husband was about to leave the house, the attaché said to him, I thank you for your help. Perhaps I can do something for you in Germany. I have influence if you should have any relatives there. To which my husband answered, They've already been killed, all of them. Tante Luisa had committed suicide, Sophie had died in Theresienstadt, and Renata had been transported away from there to where we knew not, and we never heard of her again, though we tried for many years to find out what had happened to her. We were informed exactly by the Jewish agency what was going on in Auschwitz and elsewhere, the gassing and all the other horrors. The attaché then asked, very embarrassed, for almost no one in Germany knew much about what was going on in Auschwitz or any of the other camps. May I ask for your bill? My husband only said, your money's too dirty for me, and turned his back on him and left. My mother hated us making the journey to Oxford, though she never tried to stop us. She would stand in the drive, grim-faced, not waving, watching the car drive round the green and out of the cul-de-sac towards the station. She had an unnerving ability to foresee death and destruction in the everyday. If she heard an ambulance's siren just after we left the house for school, she would be filled with an overwhelming sense of doom that would only lift when a few hours had passed without a call from casualty or from our schools querying our absence. How we used to laugh at her when she told us about the sirens. Why don't you drive us to school then, we'd ask, always keen to avoid the long walk and the groups of children from the local primary school who would knock off my grey felt hat and throw Max's navy cap over the privet hedges whenever they got the chance. Why we didn't just carry our hats or shove them into our satchels and avoid this ordeal, I still don't know. But my mother could rarely pull herself out of bed in the morning before we left for school. When we arrived in Oxford, one of us would manage to distract our grandmother in the kitchen whilst the other would creep into the sitting room to ring home and announce our safe arrival. Until we learned to do that, we would be exposed to a line of questioning that always filled me with a deep unease. My grandmother moved from Germany, where she and her husband had returned some years after the war, to England in the 1960s. She bought a house in what must have once been quite a pleasant, semi-rural area of Oxford, not far from two of her favourite second cousins, who'd been in England since the early 1930s. Very quickly, it was encircled by new streets, houses and flats. Gradually, the trim verges began to sprout more litter than grass. The neat curtains in the windows were replaced by pieces of material draped over string. And by the time Max and I were in our teens, the little shopping parade opposite the house was deserted. Apart from a tobacconist with a permanent grill over the window and a convenience store which boasted a display of brightly coloured plastic fruit and vegetables and little else. Some architectural quirk meant that the parade acted as a wind tunnel and every time we went there, plastic bags and chip wrappers would be dancing in the currents of air, lending a festive atmosphere to the otherwise bleak concrete surroundings. I'm Nicola Streeton, author of Believe Me and You, a memoir of grief and recovery, which I'm going to talk about today. The memoir, the graphic memoir that I did, is based on a true story of following the death of my child, two-year-old child, that happened 16 years ago. So although it's a true story, I decided to do it as a graphic novel rather than prose, and I'm going to talk a little bit about why. So the, the actual true bits is straight away I've put the actual date, the actual name of a real hospital and the wording. 
but it's a comic. So it, immediately there's this different balance for the readers. A comic, we have so many thoughts and assumptions about what a comic is. So why do it as a graphic memoir? Why did I make that decision? Because the thing about comics is the famous assumptions we make is that it's for children. And one of the things that often within the growing uh, academic debate around the comic form is this is seen as a slightly something we must argue against that no the comic form can be used for really serious things but actually what we forget is the beauty of it being understood as something that's easy and something that's for children because the other side of that is everyone knows how to do a comic because it's not a hostile form it's not high art it's low art it's not threatening and I think we can start to exploit that after the publication of Billy me and you I was interviewed by the local radio station, Melvin Pryor, and he said to me, we're going to talk about the book, Nicola, comic style, and I mean that in the best possible sense, as if he was offending me by suggesting that it's a comic and not a proper book. And so it's that idea that comics are easy, and I think one of the things that these characters, all of us recognise and all of us are part of our understanding of comics, and yet they're done with just two dots and a line, a very, very simple form. And that was something that I thought was a strength in my work, because if I'd used a photo of myself as, as I was the narrator, am the narrator in my story, and you had looked at it, you would have made a lot of assumptions and judgments based on how I looked in the photo, what I was wearing, my, uh, my hairstyle, my colouring, all that sort of thing. Whereas I think the beauty of the comic style with the simple line and two dots is that it has a wider recognition, so more people can see themselves in that simple idea. So one of the constructs I used when I was drawing myself is to directly speak to the reader. So I'm looking out from the box of diaries. And, and also the recognition of ourselves in the graphic novel form is something that went beyond that. Um, most people who've read my graphic memoir refer to this page, which is, I did this judging system, or I didn't actually do it numerically at the time of the experience, but I, did, I was aware and I notated at the time of people's reactions when I said my child had died. But um, when I put it into the graphic novel form, I thought, what's a shorthand of really getting across the judging? And so I did this number thing. And everyone has said, oh, gosh, when you judge people. And I think... Not only do they recognise themselves as, or the people, with that simple line drawing, but also they recognise that that is what we do. So this is the part of the reader in my story. So it's, what I've aimed to do is take it slightly beyond my own individual story of pain to reflect it back at everyone else, a wider context. And then another reason for using this text and image, apart from the opposite, which is I've, I've wor I'd worked as an illustrator for 16 years, so it started to become a natural way of telling stories. But one of the things <coughs> the images did was to reinf a reinforcement of the words. So it's no speech bubbles or thought bubbles. It's more like an illustration, but it does remind us that sort of physical business of crying and the, so I'd held back my tears at the hospital ridiculous but I hadn't wanted to further upset our families back home it felt safe to release my emotions the crying thing was so strange I cried every day for a year after Billy died but only ever in front of John or the psychologist 
not even in front of my mother, not even at the funeral. And then another thing I decided to do was incorporate photos into um, the graphic novel, which, although it's not a, a traditional part of comics, there was a form of comics of photo comics, which some of you might remember, with love stories done in photos. But I wasn't really referring to that. Eddie Campbell is a graphic novelist who has used photos. He did a particular work, Fate of the Artist. When I read his, there's one page where he uses a real photo of his daughter. And I found when I read that, I kept going back to that page of the daughter. Oh, it's real. It really is true. So although you're working your way through this comic book, you get lulled. Oh, it's just a comic. It's just a comic. Even though it's quite a difficult and sad and moving subject matter. And then you get a photo and, oh, yes, it's the, the power of the fo of photo because the camera never lies, as we know. And I wanted to superimpose the comic form people on top to remind that crossover. But also I wanted to um, use places because I think I was working from memory and I think part of memory is places. We associate with things that happen or places, you know, oh, do you remember when we were here? We talked about it. Later, Don and Mel brought the car back and stayed for a cup of tea. Mel moved Billy's top out of the way as she sat down. And I used a photo which, um, this was in the 95, so do you remember they used to, you could take them before digital cameras and they had little dates on. So it's that reminder that this is something true that happened, but I, no one did any actual stabbing. That, that's just the comic, but, it, but we all know what it's like. We used an expression, it was like someone had stabbed me. So I, I wanted to combine the two and I think this is again one of the, a successful page for me, but interestingly for the reader, when I drew it, it was the person moving the top was the stabber. Me and John were being stabbed, but people have misread it and seen me as the aggressive stabber. It's, it's that conflict of understanding is, how could you do this? But actually, that's fine, because I think, again, it's when, you, when the graphic novel is very much about engaging the reader to make it their story as well. Soon after Billy died, John and I went to Marie's party. It seemed like everyone was pregnant. And there's Marie saying, I'm eight weeks. I've booked a place in the nursery at work. And John and I sit on the sofa opposite saying, congratulations, with a big smile. And I'm thinking, she can't. It's not fair. Maybe if her baby could die just for a bit. Oh, what am I thinking? So it's that idea that you're having two voices in one simple panel. And I use this idea of being punched out of the panel as well. This is this idea of toxic chatter, which the comic form really excels in. Um, Humour and sadness is another strength of the comic form that we know already by now that the story is about. It's a very sad and terrible thing that we were going through. Uh, and I'm talking about the memories I had. So preparing for the funeral, we'd gone to the florist. I remember the florist's identity jewellery. So... This idea, I've tried to draw it in, but wanted to reinforce, draw the reader's attention. You know, he had an M on his everything. You ring, bracelet, and that was what <coughs> I remembered. And there he's saying, were you wanting a spray or a bouquet? Obviously, it's not for someone close. Uh, it's for our child's funeral, and there's a small panel of them just suddenly looking. Oh, my God. Uh, we want big sunflowers strewn over the coffin on a bed of green ferns or something. Yes, 
But would you like a spray or a bouquet? I'd forgotten his dissatisfaction with our floral choice, so at the time when I prepared this graphic novel, I'd written notes of um, what people said and what went on, and it was these details that I think actually probably were very helpful in the grieving process at the time, and because they were so funny for us, because we left the florist saying, my goodness, <laughs> he really wanted us to have a, a spray of carnations, didn't he? He wasn't happy. So, And then um, finally, I think, most importantly, it's again one of the things is the impact and the shorthand, because it's coming back to our understanding of the comic form as easy and when we came out of the hospital, when we were in that situation, when we were exhausted and shocked from grief, I think in that situation or the weeks following, if we had been given a, a, a book such as this, it may have been easier to digest in a sense because I know for myself I'm a reader of prose and love it and devoured books on death and grieving. I know people who go through situations and they, they don't feel comfortable reading prose and this seems to be an interesting way of delivering difficult or uncomfortable subject matter. So uh, I guess what I finally wanted to conclude is the graphic novel is a way of presenting memoir that has the potential to, read, to reach a very wide audience in a direct way. Thank you. All right, hello there. My name is Nye, right? Nye is short for an iron, and iron looks like aneurysm, so it's easier to just go with Nye. So I'm here to talk to you about autobiography versus autobiography. Uh, and just because it happened to you doesn't make it interesting. So uh, in talking about life writing, this is the second time I've presented in a room with Nicola, and I had absolutely no idea how you present comics to a group until I saw her do it. So it's, it's wonderful to follow her again. In thinking about life writing, there's two things I want to talk about. The dangers of it and the potential benefits of it. Now, in um, writing about life, uh, the way I see it, there's three major dangers that we got to deal with. One, selection. Two, hero. And three, dot connecting. So selection. What's that look like? Well, if we're writing from life, we're generally writing from a heap of things, a, a random sequence of events that have no meaning to them other than one followed after another, right? So the danger is that if you don't take the, the business of selection seriously, it will just end up being pedantic and annoying. Second thing is the question of the hero. In our own internal narratives, we're all suave, looking off into the distance. Um, <laughs> He's French, you know, so he's looking elegant. Maybe a little bit, you know, confused, but, you know, wearing fashionable glasses and looking thoughtful. But the truth is, in everyone else's narrative, we're third person from the back, picking nose, not paying attention. So the question of, of the hero of life writing, you need to be the hero, but other, you need to write it in such a way that other people give a damn. So the, the, the choice of protagonist is not something that only exists in drama or fiction. It's something we have to take very seriously as well. And the final thing, in terms of dot connecting, in terms of life writing, the things that you put down have to have significance and they have to have a link to something else. Otherwise, why'd you do it? So those are the risks. Um, you know, selection, protagonist, and connecting dots. Well, th those might be the risks, but there is an upside. And the upside starts with the fact, starts with what I'm calling relativity. Einstein, you know, I, I 
did not understand special relativity when I was trying to study in a physics class. It, it made my head hurt. The one thing I stuck to, though, was the idea that the observation of something affects what they, what they are, right? So the wonderful thing is the mere act of observation imposes an order on things, which can be intentional or can be accidental, but it, it, it makes it kind of interesting. The second upside is that we have a long history in art of just sticking random things together. It might look like that. Uh, I can't recall the date, but this is on, you know, lovely. Um, we don't question why he stuck those, you know, that fruit with that uh, drapery, with that bottle of wine on that table. It, it, the, the, the sum total is just a lovely object. And yes, we can spend time reading it, but it kind of works. So we've got that. And then the last thing, which is kind of nice, is, okay, it was a weakness in, the, in when you're looking at the, ne the negatives, but it's actually a positive. I took a class in art college on visual communication, and the first brief was to create something no one's ever seen before. <laughs> and I went, my God, how on earth do you do that? And the, the secret to it is, well, there's no one that anyone hasn't seen before, but if you take two things that people have seen and you combine them in a way that they haven't, that makes something new. So, enough, uh, enough philosophical mumbo-jumbo. Let's read about pill counting. Things to do in a retirement home trailer park when you're 29 and unemployed. Being a lesson in several parts put forth in the form of the comic a unique combination of words and pictures, so as to expedite communication, education, and dramatic catharsis. Activity number one, counting pills. Pill counting is the bedrock activity in, in any good retirement community. One imagines it is much like praying the rosary or contemplating the sound of one hand clapping. If one listens very carefully, one can hear the patter of pills and capsules like rain falling on the tin roofs of the trailer park. January 2003. The core medication for advanced stage emphysema is morphine. It comes in three forms, time-release capsules, oral liquid, and inhalation vapor administered from injection vials. Emphysematic lungs essentially solidify with scar tissue. Thus, expanding them to breathe can feel like you're tearing them apart. The morphine helps relax the lungs and muscle tissue, and thus ease the pain. Here are your pills, Dad. Uh, so did you bring me my stool softener? <laughs> yeah, you've got your two Senaz tablets and the two Ducasates. Why? The only problem is that morphine causes a rather delicate side effect. Um, I think we might need extra. Extra? <clears throat> yeah, um, you, you might even need to call the nurse. Yeah, hey, Robin, uh, no, he hasn't had a movement for a few days. Uh-huh, 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 yeah? You want me to do what? <laughs> she wants you to do what? <laughs> Sigh. <laughs> so you know what your mother and I learned when, you, when your sister and you were born? What's that, Dad? That you can do almost anything so long as you breathe through your mouth. <laughs> Thanks, Dad. So that's option A. Option B in our chosen method of life writing is, Dear Diary, today I gave Dad an enema. Ta. <laughs> okay, so that's example number one. Let's check out a different one. So, this is called hospice. Announcement on the subway in New York. 81st Street, uh, 81st Street Muse, Museum of Natural History, next stop, 90. November 12th, 2002. Buck 50 for a freaking train? They'll be taxing air soon. Activity number two learning about hospice. Brr, brr, brr. 
Phone call from dad at home. Hey dad, happy birthday big kid. Thanks dad. So what are you gonna do to celebrate? Oh, I'm gonna go over to Liz's place. I think she's gonna take me out to dinner. The weather's great, so I think we might even be able to sit outside. What are you up to, Dad? Uh, Dr. Beatty came today. And? Well, he certified me for hospice. So, what's that mean? Well, Medicare starts picking up the tab for my medication, and Dr. Beatty becomes my pr primary physician. He's, he's, he only does house calls. Wow, that's cool. And they'll send out a nurse to check on me twice a week to make sure I'm on the right side of the grass. Well, that's good. And, and what? And they'll send out some gal to help me bathe twice a week. Hey, not bad. Not bad? How would you feel if you couldn't get, if you couldn't get, get enough breath to keep your own unit clean without the help of some polyester-clad home health care gnome with a thing for checking out wrinkly old farts in their birthday suits? <laughs> yeah, I suppose you got a point. So, Dad, how's this work? What do you mean? Well, if it's covering all your bills uh, for pills and things, why isn't everyone in hospice? <laughs> Good point. Well, it's because of the six-month thing. Six months? Yeah, six months. Your doctor has to think you've only got six months left. Uh, okay, Dad, I, I guess I'd better go. Um, I'm in Liz's building, and I'd, I'd better go up and meet her. Okay, so Dad, will you do me a favor? Don't start some precipitous decline before I get out there in December, okay? Okay, uh, but uh, listen, I, yeah, Dad, I, uh, happy birthday. Thanks, Dad. I really wish I could be there. Ring, walks up the staircase, knock, knock, knock. Happy birthday, Nye. Nye, what's wrong? Why are you crying? Option B is, Dear Diary, today's my, today's my birthday. I've turned 29. By the way, Dad's got six months to live. So those are the first chapters from uh, this book, which is called Things to Do in a Retirement Home Trailer Park When You're 29 and Unemployed. It's been published by this lovely, amazing publishing company over here. That's what I've got to say about life writing. Thank you. Any questions? Yeah. Uh, Brain, uh, short courses for creative writing, we tend to be quite wary of people who've come along with for writing as therapy. Um, largely we deal with that by pointing out what we're looking for is uh, entertaining audiences and make sure people come on the course for the right reasons. Obviously if you're a professional writer, you get more leeway there. I wondered if you had any thoughts about where therapy and professional practice well, I think there is a whole genre of sort of psychoanalytic um, life writing, and in fact, a lot of it, it stemmed from, from work done here um, at Sussex. And it is a sort of valid way for people to write, I think, but I, it's, not, it's not something that ever attracted me, and I think I felt very much as you did that, that um, you, you probably can use bits of your past, and I think it's almost impossible not to, but the primary aim is to create something that entertains, something that has its own kind of literary integrity. Then what you thought? Um, actually, <clears throat> it's one of the questions I'm asked most frequently is, was your work catharsis? And it's, it's, I deal with it in the book. I started my graphic novel on an MA course, an MA design course, 
Uh, and and I, so it made me think about that a lot, is yes, why am I doing it? And I think and hope how it's the final product has emerged four years later is something that is catharsis for the reader rather than myself, because I visited an experience 13 years after the experience, so it wasn't raw for me. It was more reflective of why did people respond that way, and that's the, the construct of speaking out to the reader made it of benefit to a wider audience, rather than, I think, I think the problem with, make, with something's therapy is it comes as a finished form as something that's an individual story about themselves without, without, the, without as you say, without the either entertainment or not just entertainment in what a great story, but something we can learn from or something that makes us question our own space or our own response to grief or illness. And, and, and I think that's... I, I agree that it is... It, but it, it, I, I've, we've um, come across graphic novels coming out that are, are um, done as a therapy as well for the author, and they, perhaps they just become different... Stories. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, if you, you know, particularly in England, because uh, I can say this because I'm not originally from here, I think very buttoned down, you know, emotion has its proper place. So someone going out and publicly emoting is going to make everyone embarrassed. So that's that's definitely against the rules. Um, the way I kind of look at it, I was thinking about this because, um, uh, you know, thinking about what, I mean, so the, the first description I heard of Nicholas' book was, it's a book about a dead baby. But funny, and you go. I mean, so that that's an amazing hook. It's a dangerous hook, but it's an amazing one. And what makes what I hope is the case with what I've done, and what's definitely the case with what Nicola's done, is the way I kind of view an artist, a writer, anyone is they're they're given a kind of free pass from society, which is okay. You don't have to be in the regular rat race. You can step out, but your obligation is to observe and report back. Um, and so I think whatever it is, that's kind of my point about the, that um, class I had at, at uni about communi visual communication. You can't make up anything. Fundamentally, it, it comes from somewhere. It comes from some observation. It may be something in the corner of your eye when you're two that you don't even remember, but it comes from something. So everyone's always reporting back on the things that they've seen or experienced. Um, how you do, how you modulate that is the difference between art and just kind of getting it out. Um, and I think, you know, 13 years for her, 8 years for me, you don't spend as many hours doing something for it to be catharsis. The catharsis ends after, you know, the, the first 2% of the time you're working on it. The rest of the time you have to go, why on earth am I doing this? And if it's just catharsis, go to the pub. You know, so, but it, you're absolutely right. I mean, you, you, there's the danger of, you know, uh, picking up a book and going, you know, a, a book about someone losing a child. Why on earth would I read that? Well, the reason is it, it's the same reason like if you've never left, you know, if you've never left Brighton, uh, but you're a fan of travel writing. I've never been to Rome, but God, I love reading people who've reported back on going to Rome. So it's, it's, a, it's a reflection back on a, on a travel to a different place. It just happens to be an emotional one rather than a physical one. I think, I think what Nicola said about distance is very interesting because it's both real distance in terms of year, but the distance you create by using different ways of telling a story. So you create the distance by drawing really strange images you know why are you a creature and why is your father another creature and then some characters aren't and so the reader is always kind of puzzling rather than feeling it's just you telling a very sad story about the death of your father and I think what I found very interesting is feedback on my novel is the amount of people who had completely completely different lives to mine my ancestors saying 
God, that really resonated with me and my grandmother was a bit like that. And actually, I think no one's like my grandmother, but there are bits that resonate with everyone. And I think, if you, I think that's the first time I felt, well, maybe this really does work as a, as a novel, as a piece of art, and not just something I found to be an interesting personal exercise, which it never set out to be. <clears throat> oh, can I just um, say one thing about um, the other thing about this is oh it's I've had oh uh, it just seems a bit too sad I'm not going to read your graphic novel and and th- and that again is okay it is about death of a baby very specific but it's about death and grieving and we're all going to come into contact with people that we love who are close to us to die and I think it, that's what I meant I just wanted to add that same so at the funeral and the policeman had just asked me about whether my, uh, who the funeral was for, and I'd said it's for our two-year-old, and he'd, oh, he'd asked the age, and then he said, oh, because my child died um, of a heart condition also. And I said, oh, how old? One and a half days. And then he started crying, <laughs> and he said, I'll probably make myself scarce when the hearse arrives. I don't think I can handle it. And again, it's that toxic chatter. And I'm thinking, of course there were different readings so when I drew it I was just surprised I was just thinking a policeman crying about something like that because it's that idea of policeman in authority um, don't cry but a, but a reader reported to me that her, she read my thought bubble expression as how dare he express his grief at my child's funeral when it's about um, it's really about uh, me <laughs> and John. So, uh, but again, it's that idea of shorthand, and also quite humorous in in a sense, in a dark sense. And I, it's a really good analogy that travel one, because it's again, I I love Nye's book, and you know that's about specific about his father suffering from emphysema and dying. All, our parents are all going to die. It's just that. <coughs> Carry on. <laughs> Uh, you just touched on the question that I've got for Nye, and that is the significance of you being one animal and your father being a different mm-hmm. animal and other people not being animals. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was, one, it was, uh, I mean, when I started, it did actually start as therapy, uh, to go back to the previous question. It was, I was slowly going stir crazy living in a retirement home trailer park, uh, which is, as people have described Eastbourne, God's, God's waiting room. Um, and it was, uh, it was challenging. And so uh, my dad had been an architect. He had his whole you know, drafting set up in the, in the house, but he wasn't using it anymore. He's like, yeah, if you want to use it, that's fine. So I started fiddling about and, and had started writing in a journal, and that wasn't particularly satisfying. Uh, so uh, and I think after the, the sort of 37th day of waking up at 5.30 in the morning, counting the equivalent of about 20 pills, uh, for the first round of stuff, I was like, oh, it's, it's, it is kind of like counting the rosary, you know? And then this image popped into my head. But then I got to page three, and I was like, ooh, I want to draw him. I definitely don't want to draw me. Um, I'll just do something else. So, and, you know, it, it ends up being significant later on in the book. Um, it didn't start out that way. Um, and I think that's one of those lovely things about um, how the brain works is, you know, the, the dot connecting. You take, take random things, stick them together, and... Uh, you know, or, or I guess it, it, what I love about and a good connection about the three of our books is that, like in Sue's book, there's a, there's a the main character goes to visit her her home, and the lovely woman who lives there, uh, instead of saying why the hell are you staring at my house, invites her in for tea, mm. and she comes in, and the woman steps out, and 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 the main character is kind of sort of you know quite cautiously looking around, and I think walks up to the what her father's old study door. 
And there's this moment where she's clearly lost it. But the way it's described is not, I stood there gushing with emotion and thinking of this and this and this and this. You know, I stood there, the little boy came up and said, what's, what's, what's wrong? I've got something in my contact lens. Oh, mommy, mommy, can I see her Tomcat lens? And it's this very sweet thing where you, the, the emotion is so much more powerful because of the space that Sue's left for us to fill in what that kind of devastating emotion is. And I think throwing in some random things there, I mean, feedback I've already had is, I love the way you did this and this and this. And you're like, totally. <laughs> you know, so, so uh, I, you know, in the same way that, you know, Man Ray takes an iron, some, some things, sticks it together, calls it gift, and people go, you know, it's interesting the way you're modulating this, that, and the other. I have no idea. You make something, you put it out there, and then what it is is determined by the, the sort of suitcase of experiences and thoughts and prejudices and biases that everyone brings to it. So, uh, you know, I, I had a couple of things, but then it was also kind of like, I, I like drawing rhinos and minotaur. <laughs> Can I just say, um, when I uh, looked at Nye's book, I mean, are they, what are they, those things? They're sort of mythical, yeah, I, I mean, call what, them rhinoceroses. Yes. <laughs> but but I, when I first looked at the story and knew nothing about it and saw the, the way he'd used these slightly mythical animals, I was thinking, oh, it's going to be, it's a comic form, it's going to be fantasy well, I'll read it, um, you know, because I'm, but um, I, I'm not, I, I didn't expect to be able to engage in it because that's not the form I like, but what was, it, I was amazed at my response from the first page I was drawn in because I straight away realised it's about what Nye was doing, it's about a personal story that he is distancing himself in this way. And from the beginning, I said also to him, they look quite big, aggressive, Creatures or quite dangerous, but midway through, I suddenly realised they're really soft and gentle creatures. As the story was becoming, that Nye was soft and caring, gentle to his father, helping him through this place. Observation. <laughs> um, I was just thinking about what you said about impact and accessibility, and all the cartoons that you used in health messaging and that kind of thing, and whether you think about the shared emotion and the kind of influencing behaviour that your books might have because I think they're really, really helpful for people in that way and they have a big impact and I just wondered what you thought about that Well it's, it's an interesting one, in the, in the States the equivalent of uh, what is like the Oscars for comics is called the Eisners named after a guy named Will Eisner who uh, in the 40s did a strip called The Spirit which was turned into a dreadful film, please don't see it um, <laughs> And then uh, from the 70s started doing kind of what, what people have called the first graphic novels. First one was called A Contract with God. It was about several different groups of people, kind of the, the stories of Jews and their relationships with, with God. Um, but in the intervening years, from when he first did this newspaper strip up you know, through 50s and 60s, his paying gig was doing governmental instructional booklets for the yes, army. Exactly. Here's how to, here's how to clean a gun. Okay, yeah. it's a character taking yeah. it apart. Here's yeah. how to properly like polish your your mess yeah. kit. You know, so it's it's um, I mean, I, I I've been fascinated to meet the the man or woman who does the IKEA instructional. <laughs> yeah. You know, well, I'm diagrams. just thinking of the uncelebrated artists that this might help. Like the people in Brazil that write these funny magazines about sexual health for the teenagers that we work with. You know, and I think that they're amazing. And your work kind of opens that space for them. 
Sorry, there anyway. is a whole um, emerging area called graphic medicine that has been mm. recently started, and there are annual conferences. There's a third one coming in July, and there, there's a lot of literature coming uh, coming through graphic novelists um, writing about living with terminal illness or conditions and um, mental health issues as well. So it's it's touching on the taboo side mm. of. Uh, health and life. There's also um, a very powerful graphic novel about a woman's experience of living with domestic violence. So mm. I think it is it is educative, yeah. but without what what the aim should but be. It's back to that. It's got to be entertainment in the way that we watch a film and cry and, and mm. learn something and question mm. our own responses. I think that's what good are any art for well, and, and, and novels. Mm. Our, our editor, her, her second life is doing working for a company that makes just those kind of cartoons. Yeah. You know, yeah. and so it, it, so what you're talking about is actually very specifically what what Karen does all day long. Which is, yes. is bringing stories to life as as married and Bart's yeah. on its on its kind of publishing graphic graphic stuff, mm -hmm. and then also spending the rest of the time working in a company that's making cartoons for the because of their efficiency in, in communicating and yeah. Yeah. getting across ideas. Um, <coughs> actually, just a question for uh, you, Nye. What motivated your choice for the color palette? <laughs> Again, it, I think a lot of choices start with limitations. I'm a crappy colorist. Um, and I, you know, I, I look at people who can do, you know, the full range of, of, of amazing things out there, and I'm just not any good at it. Um, but on the other side, turning a limitation into a into a benefit, then thinking very significantly about, okay, if I do use some colors, what do I want to do with them? Where do I want them to go? Where do I want the reader's eye to go? Um, so, yeah. So again, accidental, and then. So were you, were you thinking from your art school training that were you, were you aware, or at some point that you know that's the those, that combination of red and blue is supposed to be very um, evokes like disease. I I hadn't thought about that at all actually. Yeah, um, it's a contrasting flag. Yeah, it, yeah, it's American flag. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I never thought that. <laughs> 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 yeah, exactly. Um, no, no, I, I hadn't thought about that at all. And again, that's one of those wonderful things is you you, you know a book is never about someone going okay here. Here I am, the author. Come decode this thing that I've done, which I think is like the James Joyce point of view. You know, here's my book of enigmas. Come figure it out. Uh, I viewed it, and this is not an original idea. I think I heard this in eighth grade English class. Is the author throws it out, you know, and then uh, the, the the reader comes to it and kind of throws their own experiences, and what the book is is kind of created in the middle of the two. So, you know, no intentions whatsoever. But I, I love the idea of that. Mm -hmm. um, have you got any advice for people who? who works collaboratively. Alan Moore is the grandfather of graphic novels who also doesn't, he just writes and he works with, a, with artists. So um, you just need to come and network with us after the event. And, <laughs> or, but we can introduce you to forums and groups where artists come and that's where you meet people who might be interested in working. 
or do it yourself. Yeah. Well, what, what I also like though is I think right now is a period where it's it's kind of the exact same thing is happening with comics as happened at the turn of the, turn of the century with the impressionists. Like there was yeah, I'm gonna do that absolutely. Which one is, are you? Yeah, well, the, what, what you have is you, you you had a path of so comics in the in the 30s, 40s, and 50s were sort of progressively getting a little bit better, you know. But generally, it was it was very very rough drawing, and it was just meant to get out day after day in a newspaper. Then from like you know 60s and 70s, all of a sudden you got these pamphlets that are coming out. At least I, I'm kind of kind of talking in terms of American stuff. And it's superhero stuff, and people start investing a little bit more time. You get more artistry in it, and then you get to in, in the states. You got to the 1990s, where I still remember. I, I, I've kept this book. I've almost thrown it away about four times. Of um, it was this. It's this god awful superhero thing where this guy's superpowers that he turns into a gigantic like Japanese mecha warrior when he gets angry, um, and he gets on a bus, and a homeless man gets on a bus and exposes himself to a mother, a mother and son, and. The drawing it, uh, where this happens is the homeless guy throws it out, and he's got abs like a model, and he's got you know like he's homeless. Yeah. When does he do sit-ups? You know, yeah. but because they, it's this absurd, so the guy could draw really well, but he just had no place. And what I love is that you know same thing happened when, leading up to the impressionists. Like academic painting was all about you know how amazing can you can you reflect life? How how incredible is the you know the patina of your multiple layers of oil glazing? And then you've got a bunch of guys who go out in fields and paint stuff, and people dismiss it, going, "Oh, that's just an impression." But that fundamentally turned the course of, of, of art. And I think what's great with comics right now is, you know, in the '90s, Nicholas' book would not have been published. Yeah. My book wouldn't have been published. And I, I like to think I can, I can draw well, but I, I can't draw the way yeah. those guys in those places draw. But we've gotten to a point where that doesn't matter. It's the story. If the story engages you, and if the 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 artwork supports that, whatever it looks like. It could be, you know, fumetti is the, is the word for the photo comics. Do that. Mm. You know, it's just about a good story. Yeah, do, uh, so if it's whether you want to do that, both parts of it. It's whether it appeals to you, because it is, it is possible now. And it's like punk. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting. One of, one of my colleagues, who's a geriatrician, is very interested in comics, and, and geriatricians are superheroes. And um, she's beginning to produce a set of fantastic comics about experience of, of caring for older people in a hospital setting. And she, I think she wouldn't mind saying, she can't draw. Uh, you've seen her work, I think. Awesome it's it's They're stick figures. It's sort of what we could probably all do, those of us who say we can't draw. And yet they're extraordinarily effective. I wish I'd brought a slide, but it's, it's possible that we'll start working with her in the med school as another way to engage students. And she's offering the possibility to students to come and do a special student-selected component on um, comics. And she's saying you don't have to draw. And I think if the story's good and if you know what you're trying to say, it can work with stick figures really mm -hmm. effectively mm -hmm. and also with fantastic drawings mm -hmm. uh, as well. And also uh, the other thing about the democracy of comics, it has a history of people, of using untrained people or people trained through doing it rather than, but now it's attracting a wider uh, Authors yeah. from like fine art or illustration, but there's still a lot of uh, publications coming up from people who are self-taught. So and, and one last thing, there's a guy who now coming from, a guy I met at a comic convention in you know when I was living in California uh, seven years ago, who's now got a huge name for himself. He started doing comics by taking Dover clip art books, uh, Victorian engravings, 
and just because they're public domain, just scanning them in and making up stories and putting them in sequence. And he's like a rock star now. <laughs> and it all started, again, started from a limitation. He couldn't draw, but he wanted to do comics, and there you go. So, so you know, the world is wide open, and there's no such thing of, as, as not being able to do it because you can or can't draw. There's partnership, there's different styles, there's, you know, or there could be something no one's discovered yet that you stumble upon yourself, you know. Yeah, I noticed that this section is called Life Writing, and yet um, we have three speakers here this morning who have not followed a, what you might call a conventional path. I mean, you've turned, you've written a novel which is drawn from life, and we have two graphic books as well. I, I wonder if you have anything, any comment on that, and, and why we're not looking at more conventional life writing this morning. Mm -hmm. I think we are looking at life writing. We are I, at life I think writing, it's life writing can be defined in a very sort of narrow way, I think. And what we're trying to do is kind of break the borders of life writing. So I think it is life writing. I don't think we've come here under false pretenses. No, but, I'm just, just about your for a moment. Yeah. I'm just talking about the more conventional yeah. way I think, people think about life writing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Don't it's necessarily think about novels or Absolutely. Graphic. I mean there is a huge amount of life writing out there. It isn't, it isn't published by Myriad, who's choosing to go down the kind of conventional novel or graphic novel, I think, at the moment. And I think, I mean, there is a, there is a, a place for life writing, obviously, but it's not something that any of us wanted to do in a conventional way. And so I think what we wanted to do is illustrate uh, that the boundaries of life writing can be broken and you still can retain some of the rules some of the truths, but, but not the truths as in the autobiographical pact with the reader that, that Nicola talked about. Um, the other thing to add in, in my own academic research, which is slow and ongoing, is um, I've been looking at uh, the graphic novelists from the point of view as a woman, a woman's vehicle to, to tell memoir. And the feminist history of, of memoir from the 70s, the personal is the political, that whole... Uh, way of thinking within feminism is very much based on prose written yeah. as memoir and it's fantastic and, I, and I'm just starting to look at that but, but I think what by taking a form such as comics which is actually very male historically completely and still most of it very male dominated what interestingly is happening now just the past year there have been a number of uh, memoirs, including my own, that are, are coming up about personal issues, but because they're presented in a slightly different form, they're uh, attracting a bit more attention. And I think that could, I, that's my question, my academic question, it could have relevance for feminism and feminist memoir writing, perhaps. It, just throw it up. My, my response to that would be, you know, going back to the, the Man Ray thing, or, you know, Marcel Duchamp signs a urinal and sticks it in a gallery at the turn of the century, and it, it changed the world. But if I do that today, it does nothing. So, so you know, it, to, to engage in life writing, the first time someone, you know, I don't even know the history of this, but I think the first novel was by a Japanese courtesan in the 1400s, and that was revolutionary, the fact that it ever happened. The next one was less revolutionary because they looked at the first person who'd done it. So it, you're, you're kind of always responding to what's come before, and if you do the same things that have come before, why are you doing it? So I guess you know the, the three of us are responding to things. That, you know, clearly what's happened in your life is relevant and interesting and, and fodder for fuel for thought. Uh, 
but I guess we're all responding in the same way that the first question uh, was, which is, boom, don't want it to just look like therapy on page. You know, it needs to be something different. So I think it's a very good question, but it's, you know, it is absolutely right, life writing, but it's, it's going, how do, you, how, how do you make it different from what's come before so that people stop and pay attention in the same way they stopped and paid attention to where you are on the gallery? And even life writing, the very um, expression of life writing is relatively new. I mean, it's only three decades, mm. three decades, certainly within academia, it was all autobiography by the man. You know, it was the, the story of the great conquest. So I think it's, it's still an emerging and growing discipline in itself, which is just exciting time. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you all for coming. I hope you've um, enjoyed it and found it interesting. We very much enjoyed being here with you. Thanks very much indeed. To find out more information about Myriad Editions, publishers of Sue Eckstein's The Interpreters, Nicholas Streeton's Billy, Me and You, and Anurin Wright's Things to Do in a Retirement Home when you're 29 and unemployed, please go to www myriadeditions.com For more info about Nicholas Streeton's monthly discussion group on female cartoonists and graphic novelists organised with Sarah Lightman please go to ladiesdocomics.com That's L-A-Y-D-E-E-Z-D-O-C-O-M-I-C-S dot com And their next meeting is taking place on Monday the 19th of March at the Rag Factory on Heniage Street off Brick Lane in London, where their guests will be the alumni of the London Print Studio in Harrow Road, who have just brought out a compilation called Parallel Lives, and that's on Monday the 19th of March from 6.30pm. There are also a variety of recordings of Ladies Do Comics events available online as podcasts at ladiesdopodcasts.wordpress.com. These include Nicola herself becoming the interviewer at another event at the First Fictions Festival at Sussex University, in which she interviews Brian and Mary Tolbert about their graphic novel Daughter of Her Father's Eyes, which contrasts the coming-of-age narratives of Lucia Joyce, daughter of James, and author Mary Tolbert, daughter of the Joycean scholar James S. Atherton. Other podcasts include Flemish cartoonist Judith Van Istendal, talking about her semi-autobiographical graphic novel, Dance by the Light of the Moon, Women's Auxiliary Air Force member Eileen Cassavetti, in discussion with myself and her daughter Francesca, who published her wartime diary in comic book format, and Myriad publisher Corinne Perlman, talking about her work for the Jewish Quarterly, as well as her design and editorial work for Comic Company, which produces healthcare information in comic strip format. You can find all of those and many more at LAY. D -E -Z, do podcasts .wordpress.com. Previous booklist podcasts can be found at www.panelborders.wordpress.com, where you can find interviews with illustrators David McKee, creator of Mr. Ben, Neil Gaiman collaborator Dave McKean, new weird novelist China Mieville, and Scottish thriller writer Denise Mina. The booklist Clear Spot was recorded by Nicholas Streeton edited and introduced by Alex Fitch. Thanks for listening.